as I was driving in this morning, just kind of as we're preparing our hearts for Thanksgiving, one of the things that I was personally praying for is that we would just truly all have a heart of just thankfulness today. Uh, thankful for all the Lord is doing, thankful for the goodness of God in so many different ways. Um, you know, but before we jump into uh, Judges 17 and 18 today, I'm getting into the idea of uh, just in what it looks like to be an authentic community. You know, I want to take about eight or nine minutes and talk a little bit more about the year-end offering. Uh, you know, this is something we've been doing uh, since before the official launch of our church in order to kind of just give away resources to kingdom causes around the world uh, to see the gospel advanced. Uh, and we do this because God calls us to do it. And we also see throughout the, the Old and the New Testament, we see God's collective people as a community, just coming together for joint causes, um, just to give away resources for the kingdom of God. We see, indivi- yes, we do see individuals giving. That is absolutely what happens. But more uh, frequently, all together, over and over again, God's collective church. We see them coming together and giving all together, both individually but also collectively, at, in unity as one, as the body of Christ, to help advance the kingdom of God around the world. Like this is the New Testament standard, and we do this collectively because we see the power and the beauty of the church working together towards a unified cause. And so every year, this is what we do. We just seek to come together as the body of Christ and to seek to advance the kingdom of God all over the world. And as our church has grown over the past four years, um, by God's grace, so has our budget, uh, which also means our goal has also grown. In our first year, we were about uh, 50% supported from the outside and 50% from uh, just kind of like within our own church. And honestly, it really made no sense uh, that first year uh, to to give away money because we really needed it ourselves with about 40 um, or 50 people every Sunday kind of gathering together in worship. But because um, this is what we believe God has called us to do as a church, we stepped out in obedience. Uh, We made a goal to give away $8,000 for missions and church planting around the world, which was about as much as we were receiving from other churches ourselves. And as we were doing that, we were beginning to instill just in our, in our own church that this is something that we're adamant about, to do whatever it takes to get the gospel to the ends of the earth uh, to, to those who have never heard the name of Jesus. And by God's grace, we hit the goal. Uh, and here we are four years later seeking to give away $41,000, uh, which is over five times our goal from four years ago. And just like every other year, you know, we're still not really sure how all this is going to work um, or even if we'll even meet the goal. Yes, last year, God totally shocked us uh, and blew us away. We hit our our goal of $35,000 last year, uh, just kind of within our church. But then pretty much out of the blue, we had a totally unexpected, extremely generous gift come in from outside of our church uh, that then almost tripled our goal, bringing in a total of $91,000 over and above our normal tithes and offerings. Um, We all together were able to celebrate as the body of Christ because we were doing this all together uh, because it was was an all-hands-on-deck thing. We needed God to move And he just moved in an incredible way. And yes, God did that last year, but that was last year. Like this is a whole new year to come again uh, together to see what God can do. And and year after year, we just seek to put our yes on the table, praying that God would use our efforts and our offering to continue to make us a church that sees people give their life to Jesus, be transformed by the gospel, and sent out on mission all over the world. Which means how we designate our resources, we want to make sure we are aligning them with God's heart which is to get the gospel to the ends of the earth, plant churches, and to also seek to help the poor and the orphan and the widow and the unwed mother and the refugee just within our own community. And as we do this, over the next few weeks, uh, we're going to be highlighting some of the different ministries and uh, things we're we're giving towards as a community. You know, last week we highlighted 
how we, how we'll be giving in to international missions to help reach those who have never heard the name of Jesus. Like you can't come to our church for very long uh, and us not talk about getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. Like this is at our core, uh, one of the things that drives a, a lot of what we do. Uh, and, and this past year, we, we commissioned out our first two long-term missionaries, uh, full-time cross-cultural missionaries. Uh, we have others in the pipeline after them and the organization we give to, it helps to support their work and, and all that they do. And the reason we give to international missions year after year is because every Christian, every Christian has a calling on their life to be a global Christian. Like this is not an optional thing as a follower of Jesus. I mean, Jesus' last words, his, he commands us, each of us, to make disciples of all nations. Uh, it's, it's, every Christian is a global Christian. It's a command from God. No, we're not all called to move our lives to an international context, but we are all absolutely called to pray and give to help get the gospel to the end of the earth. These are Jesus' uh, directions given to us. And so each and every year, collectively, as a community, this is what we do as an act of obedience to his command. But also this week and next week, we'll be highlighting church planting. And the reason we're so adamant about church planting is because this is the Bible's prescribed method to advance the gospel and to help with tangible needs in new places. Like we like to say that church planting is God's plan A to reach the world. And there really is no plan B. Like the Bible doesn't give us a different plan. And so we seek to plant new churches all over the world. And this year we hope to give to three different church plants for gospel advancement. And two are actually international church plants, um, planting in Nairobi, Africa, and then also in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Uh, which is really fun for us because this opens doors and more avenues for future short-term, mid-term, and long-term opportunities for us, just for our own pe people to get a glimpse of the entire world. In fact, our short-term trip that's coming up uh, in this, this spring is with one of our church plants that we partnered with in, in the past couple years in the Dominican Republic, which we hope to also do in the future with some of these other new plants. I mean, just as a fun note for us, as less than a four-year-old church over the past four years, we've helped plant churches in Tampa, the United States, uh, Canada, the Dominican Republic, and now uh, Nairobi and Kuala Lumpur. And not to mention, we also have partners in South Asia and the Middle East, which means our partnerships as a young four-year-old church are literally now all over the world, almost on every continent, continent except for Australia and Antarctica. Uh, maybe we'll get there at some point. I don't know. Uh, but then the third plant we're going to support this year is actually an Anglican church plant in Staunton, Virginia. Uh, and what I love about this specific church plant is that one, well, the pastor is a very close friend of mine. Um, we both started walking with Jesus together at the same time in high school. He's a major part of my own personal story, which I'll tell more of at, an, at another time. But I also love that it's outside of our network. It's outside of our denomination. And it just speaks to the fact that we seek to be kingdom-minded and not only tribal-minded. But what's fun is that all of our partners, as we'll see more of over the next few weeks, they're all through personal relationships. We say as, uh, as one of our core values is we value authentic relationships, not just within our church, but also with our partners. We want to know our people, but we also want to know our partners in a deep and meaningful way. And so as we seek to plant churches around the, the world, we're not just starting a church, but through planting a church, we're also part of changing a community, an entire community. This is what church planting does. Uh, and and we, here's how, uh, we can hear how uh, God is changing lives. And so when we're deeply connected to our partners, we know we're not just giving away uh, money to something that's a little bit ambiguous out there, but rather as they celebrate what God does with them, because we're deeply connected with them through various ways, we get to celebrate with them in a very personal 
personal way. And so that's a little bit about, you know, Anchored for the Mission, our year in offering. We'll, we'll share more about uh, all of what we're going to do in the weeks to come. But all that to say, this is for us is a unified and collective step of faith. This is a step of obedience. Uh, we're all, we're all going to rally together towards a unified cause, doing exactly what God calls us and really kind of commands us to do. And as God works on each of our hearts individually, we can celebrate uh, our, our sacrifice together corporately. And ironically enough, today, as we step into Judges 17 and 18, one of the glaring themes we'll see is how God's people deal with their resources. And no, this is not our, it's not, our, it's not really our main idea, but it is a byproduct of our main idea. It's a major theme in the text. And just to give you uh, a heads up, you know, our text is not a great text. It's just not. Um, yes, it's in the Bible. I know. I know. But there's a reason the last five chapters of Judges are just almost never preached on. I've literally wrestled with this text a ton this week because in all honesty, there's just no hope in our text. God, he never speaks. Don't see God do anything. And the reason I say it's not a great text uh, yes, it's in the Bible. We love, like, all Scripture is God-breathed. But the reason I say it's not a great text is because it's a totally godless text. And it's, that, and it's not that God is totally absent, but rather it's that God is totally ignored. And the reason it's here, because, again, all Scripture is God-breathed and it's profitable for all of it's profitable for us, is because uh, we see what happens when God is ignored. And what's crazy is that it kind of looks okay in some cases, like almost like a thin veneer of religion. But in reality, it's totally lifeless and dead. And if I had to explain our text um, with a word picture, it would be like going into the woods uh, and bringing out a bunch of just, uh, branches that kind of look not so bad just to find out they're totally dead, hollow, and lifeless. Like they, they, all, like they look okay, maybe, but they're just dead. And we're sitting here like, oh great, this is going to be a long morning. Maybe we should just skip these last five chapters. But I say that, and I do believe with my whole heart that this text will be incredibly helpful for us. Like I believe it can be a warning to us of what a church looks like when God is ignored. And the hope for today is to take these dead branches that we see and kind of light them on fire with Jesus and the hope of the gospel. Just like and just totally rejecting any sort of an inauthentic faith, uh, just giving and, and hoping by the end of our time having a really nice, uh, warm, blazing fire uh, to enjoy. And so we're gonna uh, we're gonna take Jesus with the, like this the, the the sour lemons we have, and Jesus is gonna help us make some sweet lemonade. That's what we're doing. Okay, I'm um, seeing as our main idea: God longs for an authentic community of faith. And yes, that's ultimately where we're going. We do have some uh, dead wood uh, to gather before we get there. Because really our text shows us the exact opposite of authentic faith. We'll see a picture of an unhealthy and an inauthentic faith community. Maybe it would be fair to say this is a picture of what happens when we want the benefits of God, but it's only as long as it works for us in our time and in our way. And the reason I think this text will be so helpful is because I absolutely refuse to let our church become a church that looks okay on the outside, but is totally dead and lifeless on the inside. Like, uh, like no, we believe that Jesus rose from the dead and that every uh, area of our life is totally worth surrendering to. 
Like we are a church that is empowered by the spirit of God that totally refuses any sort of dead and lifeless religion. Like Jesus is alive and active and is, he, is, he is changing and he is transforming lives around us. And so what we're gonna do with the rest of our time is we're gonna take about eight or 10, maybe 10, 10 or 12 minutes and kind of tell this story um, that I said is like a dead and lifeless story. Sounds fun, right? And then on the back half, we're going to have several takeaways about how Jesus changes what we see in this text, uh, what it, how, how we're led towards a healthy uh, and authentic faith community. And so today, in Judges 17 and 18, we come to a story of a man named Micah, and we also have a Levite priest that we'll see, and we'll also see uh, the people from the tribe of Dan. So there's all these different like, people that are kind of coming together, colliding together. And as soon as I say that, one of the things I want to draw out about all of these people that we'll see is that they're all, um, we see they all have Hebrew names and backgrounds, and it's a, uh, this is a story about all, they're all God's people. There are no outside enemies that we see within our text. Uh, as we've seen in the past, we've seen the, like the Philistines um, kind of like as the enemies. We've seen other enemies kind of coming in from the outside. But in this story, no, we'll see uh, all of God's people just kind of imploding from within. And as you remember, last week, we, we, we said we saw Samson. He was the last judge in the book of Judges. Uh, he took down 3,000 Philistines, and then um, he kind of died uh, to end. Just like all the others, he died. And then look, starting in verse, chapter, uh, verse 1 of chapter 17, where we pick up today. This is what it says. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me, I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. And so we've got a man with a religious name, religious Micah, uh, was in a religious place, and apparently his mom had 1,100 pieces of silver stolen from her, which would have been a lot of money. This would have been like four or five million dollars today. And, she, and obviously she wasn't real happy about it, and so she placed a curse on whoever stole the money. Um, it's kind of showing us, she understands like the blessing and cursing it was kind of a, uh, a religious thing that they did. Come to find out it was her son Micah who stole the money. Um, and it's kind of like, well, whoops, I put a curse on my son. Showing us scene one of our story. Um, kind of help us keep us on track. I've got six scenes for today. Um, I've titled them. Um, hopefully they all help make sense. Number one is the blessed heist. Micah, his mom, and the stolen riches. And so Micah, he got a little nervous when he heard this curse. Uh, and so because he, when he heard the curse, he decided to give the money back. And his mom tried to reverse the curse uh, that she inadvertently put on him. Uh, and so she blessed him in return. And look at the first half of verse 3. And he, rest he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand. So mama uh, is pursuing the blessing. And so she says, all of this money is going to be used for the Lord. And so they dedicated it to the Lord. It was like an offering to the Lord. Again, a good and noble thing. A mom uh, and his son and her son, they want to give to the Lord. But, at the, uh, but look at the second half of the verse. Um, she says, I dedicate the silver of the Lord from my hand. And then she says, for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. Which leads us to our, the title of our next scene, scene two, the shady art project, um, the offering and the carved images. 
basically Micah's mom dedicated the money to the Lord to do exactly what God said not to do which was to not make a carved image like this was the second of the ten commandments that God gave to his people like don't do this and they did it again seems like a nice religious nod in some ways from the outside making offering to the Lord but it did not please the Lord it was dead and lifeless and let's remember um, she said she wanted to give 1100 pieces of silver to the Lord and then look what it says verse 4 So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man of Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and a household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. And so we've got this shady art project and it just gets a little bit shadier. She didn't give 1,100 pieces like she, she vowed and she committed, but 200 pieces. Um, so she kind of took back on what she uh, pledged. Uh, but they also did several more other things that did not make God happy. Um, they said they were going to do carved and metal images, but they had a little bit of extra cash on hand. And so they made an ephod, which was like, a, like this priestly garment that they would have had. And so they wanted their own. And they also made these other household gods, which were like false gods. And then they ordained uh, his son to be priest again. At the surface, some of this seems like a nice thing to do. I mean, ordaining their son seems very honorable, um, but it was outside of God's plan. For number one, they, they made idols, which that was like, they, they knew better than that. They should not have done that. But then number two, like they can't just make someone whoever they want to be a priest. It doesn't work that way. They had to come, in order to be a priest, you had to, go th- you had to come from the tribe of Levi. That's how it worked. So it would have almost been like me telling my son, Hey, I now crown you king of England because I want you to be the king of England. Like, it would have been totally absurd. Like, I have no power or authority to do that. And as they're trying to make their own personal temple in their own home with their own personal priests, they were dishonoring the Lord because they, they, they were not supposed to do that. They had temples or they, had, they, were able, they were places of worship where they had to go to at that time. And they were like, well, I don't want to do that. I want to have my own personal place here. That was at this time in history. That's not for us today, though, which is why it says in verse 6, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is like the theme of the whole story. They do whatever was it right in their own eyes again same story different verse they simply made up their idea of God they wanted God but they wanted God on their own terms and according to their own desires they worshiped what they thought God should look like be like but not actually the God of the Bible they weren't worshiping how God presented himself and then as the story continues we see uh, a young man a Levite young guy from the house of Judah, and he kind of shows up on the scene. And come to find out, if you go and look at the end of chapter 18, we find out that his name is Jonathan, and it's actually Moses' grandson. And Moses was this guy that God gave the Ten Commandments to, which in our story, these commandments, they're just being broken left and right, almost breaking every single one of them. And so when you find out that this is Moses' grandson, it's like, a, it's like a shocking thing that happens at the end of the story. Showing us scene three, the wandering Levite, Moses' opportunistic grandson. So apparently this guy, he didn't have a place to stay. Maybe he was kind of running away from home. Uh, Maybe he was just trying to figure out life and all that was going on around him. Uh, Maybe he's being a bit rebellious. Maybe he's tired of living with his parents and under their authority. And he's a Levite and he's got the name. He's got the uh, recognition, but he's on this little like, uh, he's just trying to, he's kind of wandering, trying to figure out his life. And he finds Micah and Micah offers him a place to stay. And then Micah finds out, oh, this is like a Levite. 
he could be like a, a real priest, not like a makeshift priest, but like a legit priest. Not a wannabe one, but a real one because he comes from the tribe of Levi. And so he invites him in and says, you can stay here. You can be my priest. I'll pay you because remember they had some extra cash on hand. He says, I'll pay you. I'll clothe you and you can live here, which again, it's, it doesn't work this way. That's not how it works. And being a Levite, um, he, ha- like he knew better than this. He grew up being taught the law. He know how all this works. He, he, he's seen priest ordained. He was Moses' grandson, but he's a bit opportunistic. And so he's like, oh, let's, 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 let's just play the game. Let's go for it. And look what Micah says about all this in verse 13. Then Micah said, now I know the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest which is a bit funny because Micah thinks he's got a blessing, but it's really this guy, this Levite guy that's running away from everything and he's just playing a game. He's playing a religious game here. Uh, Not to mention like uh, his son was also ordained as a priest. And so now he's got two priests in his house, which at this point, it kind of seems like an episode of the Beverly Hillbillies. Like nothing makes sense. Everything seems a little bit absurd. And as the story continues in chapter 18, we're then introduced to another group of people. So now we're on to, uh, we've got Micah, we've got the Levite, the wandering Levite, and now we've got um, the tribe of Dan. As people of Dan, um, they're like, uh, looking, they're looking for a place to live. They're trying to find a home. Leaving me to title scene four, just to keep us on track, the tribe of Dan's Zillow search. They're searching for a home. And they've got the Fab Five and their search for land. And so what do the people of Dan do? Um, well, uh, they, they got five guys, the Fab Five that I've, I've called them, to explore and find a place to live. And they came across Micah's house. Again, they're looking for a new home. The tribe of Dan, they're looking for a new home. And look what it says in verse three of chapter 18. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levites. And they turned aside and said to him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And so these five guys that are kind of wandering, like that are trying to like find, find a new home for the whole tribe of Dan, they recognize this new priest at, like in Micah's house, which I'm assuming they recognize him because it's Moses' grandson. Like he had to have been a big deal. He, they knew who he was coming from the line of Moses. And they're like, what are you doing? How did you get here? Where, like, what's going on with your life? And he tells them his story and how he became a priest. And these five guys are like, awesome. Glad you're a priest now. Uh, will you tell me if my journey, if our journey is going to succeed? And um, he's like, I'm just going to go along with this and see how it works. Although he's, he's acting like a priest, he's not a priest. And we don't, like, we don't see him ever ask the Lord anything. He never goes and inquires to the Lord. He's doing everything just kind of on his own. But he says pretty quickly and confidently, yes, y'all will succeed. It's a bit of a clueless blessing here. He's just kind of playing the role as priest, but he's not a priest. Doing, he's doing a religious nod. It's almost like a religious nicety. And so they all leave and they continue on their search for land. Uh, and, they, and on their Zillow search, they stumble across the people of Laish and see how they are living. And so now at this point, they're like 100 miles away from Micah's house. Uh, and they're like, this is our place. We found our home. I'm happy. Uh, leading us to scene five that I've titled Finding Luxurious Laish, um, the tribe of Dan's new home. 
They basically see uh, that these people, they're living uh, mighty fine and fancy. They've got all the nice things. They've got all the resources and wealth. And they're like, that's our land. That's where I want to live. They've got everything. Uh, they've got, so, so the people of Dan, they've got their eye on the prize. So we've got uh, the Fab Five, those five guys uh, from the people of Dan. They go back and they get 600 armed men uh, and they camp out because they, want, they, know, they know where their new home is. They want to just take it. Uh, and they went back to Micah's house and they want to have a little chit chat with Micah and, 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 and the priest. And look what it says in verse 14. And then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brother, do you know that in these houses... Uh, there in, uh, in these houses, there are an ephod, household gods, and a carved image, and a metal image. Now, therefore, therefore, consider what you will do. And so these five guys, they remembered Micah and all the stuff that they had bought. All this, uh, all, they were like, hey, that seems kind of nice. I want that. They wanted that for their house, um, for their new home. Leading us to our last scene, scene six, um, the second heist and the priestly pickle. Okay, if you remember, the first heist was when Micah stole from his mom, and now the second heist is the tribe of Dan stealing from Micah. Again, a very complicated story, but hopefully you're staying along with me here. Um, so they've got these 600 men. They're all waiting outside uh, while those five guys, they go and get all this stuff. Uh, Micah's new priest, uh, which is Moses' grandson, again, he's waiting kind of at the gate while all this is going on. Uh, and then he says to them, as these guys are on their way out, he's like, what are y'all doing? He's kind of curious a little bit. And look at verse 19. Look at what they say to, the, to Jonathan the priest. And they said to him, keep quiet. Put your, head, put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest in the house of one man or to be a priest in a, to a tribe and a clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. And so, well, what happened? These people, they sweet-talked the priest. They said, hey, you're going to be a father. They were like kind of giving him a nod. Uh, they were sweet-talking him. And so they recruited Micah's priest to come and be their priest, kind of putting him in this pickle, we would think, but it wasn't really a pickle so much because he really, it wasn't a hard choice. He wanted to do it. He was opportunistic. He saw a promotion as a priest. And so it says the priest's heart was glad. Well, of course, Micah and all their neighbors are not very happy about this, about what's going on, and they try to get uh, the priests and all of their stuff back. They try to get their art project back, and they started yelling at them. And as a response, they basically just kind of brush off Micah and all their people, and they're like, be quiet. We don't want to have to kill you. And remember, these are all of God's people like all working together, um, and there's some family fighting going on. Maybe it's like, a, it's like a Thanksgiving dinner gone south. And look what it says to end the chapter. The people of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. And look what this says, uh, verse 27. And the people of Dan took what, uh, what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rahab uh, that then they rebuilt the city and lived in it. So that's the story. That's our story for today. It's interesting at best. It's a little intriguing in some, in some parts. 
But we're left asking, so what? Like, what do we do with this? It's in the Bible. What do we do with this? We've got Micah and his wealthy mom, right? They've, they've made a bunch of relig- religious artifacts and idols with the money that they had. They ordained a wandering priest, a uh, wandering man as a priest in the tribe of Dan, ended up taking everything for themselves. And we're left asking, like, so what? And I think if we're honest, like, it's, it, maybe it's not a super compelling story. Maybe confusing. It doesn't seem to tell like a wild movie thrill like Samson. It doesn't have the great call and courage of, like, like we saw with Gideon. It's not like Ahud and Deborah uh, just seeing God use uh, different leaders in different ways. It's interesting with a few random details, but I think we also get why most, most people don't preach on this text. The story of Micah and the Levite pri- priest, it's like a pretty forgettable story. Everybody's basically, in this whole story, from start to finish, they're just doing whatever they want under the mirage of religion, and it's all pretty empty. Like, God never says anything. We never see God do anything in this story. It seems like religion on the outside, but it's all totally lifeless. There's no hope and no power in this story. This is a picture The end of Judges is a picture of a community of people that know some of the religious jargon, but they don't actually know their faith in an authentic way. It's not authentic and real. It's a picture of an unhealthy and an inauthentic faith community that does whatever they want while trying to sprinkle a little God on top. Again, it's like going out into the woods and finding a bunch of dead wood, throwing it in a pile to dispose of it. And it's just all lifeless. But for the rest of our time, we're going to try to, we're going to bring in our gospel hope into all of this. And we're just going to light the, the, the dead wood on fire by taking all these things that they did without God in our story. And we're going to see how the power of Jesus and the gospel flips all this upside down because we have a transforming faith that infuses life into dead, uh, into dead situations. And so I've got five quick things I want to show us from our text that we're going to contrast towards just a positive view of authentic faith. Of, of a faith community. And the first is number one, an authentic community is a unified community. Again, we see several things in our passage that we could draw out and talk about. Like uh, there's a lot of wrong that happened. They broke almost all of, all of the 10 commandments, almost all of them in one story. But at the core of all of it, they were their own worst enemy. Being unified with the Lord and with each other, it it wasn't even close to being on their radar. They didn't care about other people. No, they did whatever seemed right in their own eyes, and disunity was the result. We see Micah steal from his mom in chapter 17, seeing a picture of just disunity in the family. But then also we get into chapter 18, we saw God's people self-destructing, and they're just fighting against one another. They're stealing from each other. They had no hope for unity because their devotion was not to the Lord, and it certainly was not to one another. No, they were devoted to their own desires and nothing else, which is the perfect recipe for disunity. In relationships, when we're only worried about our own desires, unity won't happen. It'll be really hard. And the same is true for our families at work, on sports teams, in the church. The path towards unity, which Jesus said in John 17 was essential for the church, the path towards unity is being wholly devoted to the Lord and not putting, not just putting our, ourselves first in all things. Unity comes through a unified cause and purpose, direction and beliefs, but it also requires sacrifice. Because y'all, nobody's the same. 
As the body of Christ, yes, we're to be uniform, I mean unified, but not uniform. We're not all the same, but we are all going in the same direction. No, we won't all give the same amount of money, but we are giving to the same cause. No, we don't all serve in the same way, but we're all serving for the same purpose. No, we don't all have the same desires and the same opinions, but we do have the same word. We do have the same God and the same Jesus that rose from the dead, giving us all the same spirit inside of us. And y'all, whether we like it or not, every single person that calls Jesus Lord, God has joined us together as family. We are all unified because we all have the same spirit inside of us. And unity comes when we follow the Lord and the Spirit in us and not our own desires like we see happen in our story over and over again. All that to say, new city in Christ, we are all unified. But the question we must ask is, whose desire are we following as we're seeking to be unified? Are we seeking our own desires or the Lord's desires? And how we answer that question will determine how unified we truly are. And listen, y'all, if if disunity is ever present, we must know that is not from God. No, that is straight from the enemy that is seeking to sow discord within the people of God. So number one, an authentic community is a unified community. And then we also see number two, an authentic community is a content community. You know, there's no denying there are are underlying themes of discontentment all throughout this story while they just ignore God. Micah would not have stolen from his mom if he was content with what he had. Micah's mom would not have had an offering to the Lord and made carved in metal images if she was content with how God had revealed himself. They would not have sought to make a makeshift priest that dishonored the Lord if they were content with how God had placed their priest kind of throughout the land during that time. Dan, he, they, they, those people, they would not have taken the priests and all their stuff and if they were content with what God, the, the plan that God had given them. And I can't help but see this as a glaring indicator of an unhealthy community that just kind of ignores God or maybe just kind of forgotten God in these moments or forgotten the goodness of God. When a group of people are discontent with what God has put in front of them, the results are not good. They can't be good. But when our hearts are both individually and corporately are content, y'all, God does wonders. A discontent person or people will often start to cut corners, maybe, or take matters into their own hands. When we're discontent with what we have, we overspend. We live outside of our means. When we're discontent, maybe just with our lot in life, maybe with our friendships or relationships or whatever it is, it's often because our hearts and our eyes are just focused on the wrong thing. Just for my own life, as soon as I start to look inward and focus on my own life, putting my life and everything around me under a microscope, like a discontent heart is on the horizon. Discontentment comes when our eyes and our hearts have become misordered and we have lost focus on what's most important. And when when we've lost focus on the love of God and all that we've gained in Jesus, like we're just gonna struggle. Like I find again, I find myself the most discontent often when I'm just the least satisfied with the Lord. It's when I'm not finding my joy and satisfaction in Jesus, but rather just in my surrounding circumstances. And this is so easy for us to do. When our joy and contentment is determined by our kids' obedience or how much money we have in our bank account or how successful we are at work or in school or how a hobby is going, our joy and contentment is just going to come and go with the wind. But when our satisfaction is found on Jesus and Jesus alone, our joy and contentment, we have a stable and steady foundation. 
And I can't help but think of how beautiful it is when a community of people come together and are wholly content on the Lord and nothing else. You know, when, we're, when we're discontent, we grumble and we complain, but when we're content in the Lord and just have a thankful heart, our zeal and passion for the Lord uh, and just for what God is doing in His ways, it is just utterly refreshing. And so yes, an authentic community is a unified community, a content community, and in, in conjunction with that, number three, an authentic community is a generous community. Everything in this story is centered, is surrounded around money and promotion and a desire for more. Again, Micah stole money from his mom and they both spent that money that they sacrificed to the Lord on things that God did not like. Levi was the wandering priest. He was discontent and so he just like got up and left for a bigger job. He was just constantly going around and there's nothing wrong with seeking a promotion. That's not what we're talking about but the discontentment of what, with where he was uh, is, pre- is, is, is what we're pointing out. Again, a discontent heart specifically with our resources will often drive us to withhold or to drive us to want more or maybe like we see in our, in our text to steal a discontent heart with our resources it can often lead towards just greed but a content heart that is submitted to Jesus will do the exact opposite and be extravagantly generous like God calls us to be you know one of the leading indicators of contentment in the Lord and nothing else it is our own generosity and I know as soon as we talk about giving and generosity this just makes people squirm Like this is one of the most disliked topics in the church. It just is. And the reason is because our hearts and our desires are so easily tied to our wallets and to our bank accounts. Because when we give money away, it's immediately forcing us to sacrifice another love. Which is one of the many reasons why the Bible calls followers of Jesus to give joyfully and and cheerfully and extravagantly and sacrificially. Because when we give to the Lord, when we give to the local church and the kingdom causes, we're saying Jesus is our first love. Like it's putting our, our money where our mouth is. And we come together as a people and give towards a unified cause. We're displaying a collective unity and our love for God's kingdom. You know, New City, Jesus, in Luke's gospel, he taught uh, the treasure principle. And he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And, and notice it's, it's treasure, where we place our treasure, not where we place our heart. Where we place our treasure, our heart follows. Which means we place our treasure, uh, we place our resources, our money, our time. Where we place those things, our heart will then follow it. And so when we give to advance Jesus' kingdom, our heart and our love for Jesus' kingdom will grow. When we give to the Lord, the result is a, a greater devotion and a greater love for the Lord. Giving generously to the local church grows our love and concern for the local church. It's a step of commitment to the body of Christ. And y'all, I mean this from the bottom of my heart. Giving to the local church, it is absolutely not a budget issue. It's not even an issue of responding to needs, although we see that time and time again in the New Testament. Giving generously is more so a heart and a discipleship issue. Like we get baptized because God calls us to do it. It's a step of obedience. And we also give to to the church and kingdom causes because God calls us to do it. It's an act of obedience. It's a step of faith. And it also steers and it directs our hearts towards loving the church. Giving shows that our heart is content in the Lord. It shows that Jesus is the first thing in our life. Again, a a heart that struggles to be generous, it's, it's a direct indicator of a heart that struggles to be content 
And whether we like it or not, like contentment and generosity, they just go hand in hand. They do. And we give generously. It's showing we're fighting to be content in the Lord and nothing else. And please hear me. Like I am not bringing this up to heap on guilt, but rather because this is just what God calls us to do. A healthy disciple is a generous disciple. A healthy church is a generous church. This is just the way it works. And so we as a church, we seek to give generously. And we talk about being a healthy follower of Jesus in a healthy church. Like we must talk about giving and generosity. They go in hand in hand. This is just a New Testament norm. And so number one, an authentic community is a unified community, a content community, a generous community. And then also number four, an authentic community submits to the Lord in all things. And we've seen this throughout our entire text. Over and over again, they didn't do what the Lord wanted. No, they they did everything they wanted under the mirage of religion. Like, just the theme of resources and how we use them, it's a major theme in these chapters. And so is this idea of God wanting our entire life. And this should be no surprise because this is a reoccurring theme all throughout Judges. God doesn't want half-hearted faith and made-up faith based on what we want. No, he wants 100% of our life. He wants our undivided devotion and not based on what we want, but, uh, but based on who God is. And in these few chapters, like we, we just see a disobedient people while at the same time, they're not like crazy disobedient like we've seen in the past in Judges. Uh, it's, in some ways, it's like a polite apathetic disobedience it's kind of like they're just kind of coasting through and the result was being halfway in with the Lord when it worked well for them they were in but yet when it wasn't convenient eh, not so much you know at the end of the day the, the story of Micah is a picture of desiring a convenient faith get a little Jesus here a little worship here, but if it doesn't work for me, I'm just going to change it and so it fits with me. God can have 90% of my life, but that last 10%, I don't really like that, and so I'm just going to hold on to that. And you know what that last 10% is for most Christians? It's how we use our resources. No questions asked across the board how we align our resources and give our money. It is one of the single hardest things for believers to do to hand over to the Lord. And this is exactly what we see in our story. Everything we saw was based on how they use their resources. And and yes, it is so hard sometimes to submit our wallets and our resources all to the Lord. But it's not just that. God wants every single nook and cranny of our entire life, a life that follows the Lord, submits to the Lord in everything. A life that follows the Lord submits to God in how we speak and how we treat others and how we use our time and schedule our days, how we forgive others, how we uh, get out of our comfort zone or how we find comfort and find contentment, how we engage in the church. God wants every area of our life. God doesn't call us just to do what's convenient, but he calls us to become like him in every area of our heart and life. And so we must ask, what area of our life is driven more by what we want than what God wants? And what I know to be true is that whatever it is, whatever area of our life it is, it won't be easy to give over. But yet this is exactly how God transforms our lives. Time and time again, 
Like we are called to sacrifice day after day, lay down every, like more, like all these parts of our life that we're just holding on to, handing them over to the Lord day after day, every area of our life, handing it to God. But the reality is none of this is going to happen if we don't see our last point to be true. And it's number five, an authentic community is passionate about Jesus. Because at the end of the day, submitting our lives to Jesus is the fuel that drives our unity and contentment and our generosity and giving over every area of our life to the Lord. When we have a really small view of God, everything in our own life and our own desires, they just become so much bigger to us. But when we have a big view of God or we just remember that how big God is, oftentimes we just lose sight. Our eyes, like when we see the, the grandness of God, our eyes are gazed upon the greatness of God. Everything else, it just kind of pales in comparison. Like it's hard to say, Jesus, take every area of my life when we don't comprehend or we just forget or lose sight of the grandness and the fullness of God and his goodness and his love. But when we look to the cross and see our sin nailed to the cross and we look to Jesus and see his love for us that was displayed at the cross, like just, sit, just being reminded of the forgiveness that we've been given, finding unity with the Lord and with others, finding contentment and being generous and handing over our life, it's just easier. It's not easy, but it is easier. New City, yes, we've, we've seen a story where God seems to be absent, but we can't miss that behind the scenes, God was just like weeping in tears with all of this as he saw his people just wholeheartedly reject him in his ways. And they just kind of settled for carved uh, pieces of metal and carved images, and they replaced God's unimaginable glory for these little pieces of metal. And God... I just kind of imagine him just weeping just out of his divine love. And it's not that God, it's not that God left them, but rather it was that they ignored God. They rejected God when they felt inconvenience. New City, our call today, our call today is not just strive to be content. Our call is not to be more generous and be more unified and be more obedient. No, our call today is to look to the grandness and the greatness of Jesus and the cross and to gaze upon his unwavering love and to just be overwhelmed by the sacrifice and love that God has shown us. Our call is to consider the power and love that has been made available to us through the resurrection of Jesus day after day after day. Like, praise the Lord, we don't have a dead and lifeless religion. No, we worship a risen Savior that is alive and active and is transforming hearts to be authentic in faith. Like we, we first think worship Jesus and then out of the overflow of our worship, God moves us towards unity and contentment and generosity in a totally surrendered life. So again, the call is to look to the grandness and glory and beauty of Jesus and then just say, God, what do you have me to do? To then say, God, how do I respond with this? That's the call. Look to Jesus and just stand amazed at what he does. Let's pray. God, I don't know how you're working. I don't know how you're moving. But I know that your spirit is alive and active. And I know that we want to call upon you to move into our hearts and move in our lives. God, that we would just have a holy surrendered life. That we wouldn't, we wouldn't strive to live out of our own, to seek our own desires. God, I pray that we wouldn't strive to just do whatever we want, but we would time and time again just remember the goodness of God and just say, God, take my life yet again. 
God, if there's anyone in here today that has never surrendered their life to Jesus and say, God, take my life in salvation, I pray that today they would do that. They would say, God, I can't do this on my own. I need your help. Would you take my life? God, we're so thankful for your goodness. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.